And we'll read starting from verse 1. All the way to verse 37. John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and Aramaic Abatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away from him. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After Jesus, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine in the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. If you bow with me in a word of prayer. And let us pray together uh, a Puritan prayer titled, The Precious Blood. Blessed Lord Jesus, before thy cross I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused thee to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns, the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body, the dying cries. Thy blood is the blood of incarnate God. Its worth infinite, its value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper, born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me as a shadow, intermingling with my every thought, my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul. Sinner that I am, why should the sun give me light, the air supply breath, the earth bear my tread? Its fruits nourish me, its creatures subserve my ends. Yet thy compassions yearn over me. Your heart hastens to my rescue. Your love endured my curse. Thy mercy bore my deserved stripes. Therefore, let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation. Bathe in thy blood tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation. Holy Father, we 
commit this hour to you. And in your son's name we pray. Amen. On the eve before our Lord's death, he met privately with his disciples. That discourse, that upper room discourse, is recorded for us in John 14 through 17. That discourse ended with his high priestly prayer, where he prayed for the eleven, and he prayed for us. And in that prayer, he expressed his greatest desire for God's people. He expressed his greatest desire for you and for me. It is found in verse 24 of that chapter, 17. He prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. What is our Lord's greatest desire for us? What is his prayer? Is it protection from harm that we might experience comfort, experience uh, provision in this world, that we might have a carefree life and existence? His prayer for us is that we might see, know, and experience his glory. Why? Because uh, true happiness lies here. As people created by God, beholding of His glory is the only way we receive rest in our souls. Only way we find peace, strength, satisfaction, spiritual blessedness. The world lies to us. This peace that passes all understanding it is a peace that the world cannot give. It is only found when we behold the glory of God's Son. Only a sight of His glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. And this is the reason for His prayer. John Owen said, The hearts of believers are like a magnetized needle which cannot rest until it is pointing north. So also a believer, magnetized by the love of Christ, will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds His glory. Unbelievers see no glory in Christ. They see nothing pleasing to Him, by Him. Nothing that, no beauty, no glory, no happiness or satisfaction in Christ whatsoever. They are offended by His name. They stumble at the message of the cross. But for believers, it is a source of our joy, source of our salvation. The Bible is the singular record of the glory of God's Son. But where do we go to see the height of God's glory in Jesus Christ? Where do we go to see um, the great, greatest point, greatest revelation of Jesus' glory? Is it in John chapter 2 when he turned water into wine, his first miracle? Is it in Matthew 14 when he stilled the waters and he walked on water? 
Is it in John 6 when he fed the 5,000 with fish and bread? Is it when he healed the leper in the Gospel of Mark? Or in John 11 when you raised Lazarus from death? The eyes of flesh naturally turn to such spectacular displays of power to see the glory of Jesus. But no, they are glimpses of Christ's glory. But the height of our Lord's glory is seen in His death on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. Pastor John Piper said, it is the blazing center of the glory of God. The place where he, where he experienced the most shame. The place where he evidenced the greatest weakness is the place of his greatest glory. How paradoxical is this? Right? In that place where he experienced the greatest shame of his life, the place where we saw him most vulnerable, most weak, reveals his glory and therefore the glory of God. So, people in the flesh turn away because they're embarrassed, they're humiliated. They see weakness and shame. But for Christians, our hearts melt before the cross and it is a joy and privilege for us to stare and gaze and to concentrate, to meditate, and to learn from the cross of our Lord. I, I want to savor this study with you this morning. To me, this is my, my joy. I, I am inexpressibly thrilled to be able to study and proclaim the cross of Christ to you on this day. John Charles Ryle wrote concerning John 19, he that can read a passage like this without a deep sense of man's death to Christ must have a very cold or a very thoughtless heart. Great must be the love of the Lord Jesus to sinners when he could voluntarily endure such sufferings for their salvation. Great must be the sinfulness of our sin when such an amount of vicarious suffering was needed in order to provide redemption. Having ears to hear, let us hear. Having eyes to see, let us see. Let us gaze with holy wonder and mark the flashes of light amid the awful darkness of that midday midnight. So open your Bibles if you have not done so already to John 19. Here is the Apostle John's description of the crucifixion. Now the beloved Apostle does not dramatize it by portraying the drip, dripping blood. He does not give us a blow-by-blow blow blow description recounting of the horror of the cross because John's intent is not to show the human agony of the cross. His focus is not to elicit an emotional response. He wants to, by proclaiming the gospel, create faith in us through the Holy Spirit. He has uh, openly 
declared the reason for this gospel, reason for his book, his 21 chapters. In John 19.35, he wrote this. He testifies. He's an eyewitness of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And he wrote this down so that we might believe in Jesus. In John 20.31 also, these are written that you and I might believe in Jesus as God's Son, as the promised Messiah. Therefore, the gospel is for you, gospel is for me, gospel is for unbelievers, it's for everyone, so that we might believe in Him. So His focus is not on the human agony of the cross, but it's on the message of the cross where we see God's hatred towards sin, and we see God's infinite love for us, and we see, uh, I mean, behold, God's sacrifice to pay for our sins. So, let's gaze on the glory of Christ by looking at His shame and weakness. The shame that He experienced on the cross and the weakness that he evidenced before the world. A fourfold shame and twofold weakness. Fourfold shame, twofold weakness. First is, he was uh, led outside the city. This is his first shame. Verse 17, they took Jesus and he went out. This was not just out of Pilate's house, but out of Jerusalem. Our Lord came and he was to be enthroned as the king of the Jews and king of the world. He came to the city of David, God's city. And three times in the gospel, he speaks of being lifted up. And those are technical terms of being enthroned as king. He was supposed to come to Jerusalem and reigned there in the line of David in glory, power, and majesty, and be enthroned as king. Instead, he was kicked outside the city. He was led away as a sacrifice for sins of man. They didn't welcome him. They kicked him out. Second shame was they made him carry the instrument of his own death. He was made to carry his own cross. He went out bearing his own cross. This is a portion of the punishment that was imposed on the vilest criminals. They were, married, they were made to carry the beam where they were to be crucified. In the fullest sense, they wanted to humiliate him. They want to shame him. In our nation that has capital punishment, they don't broadcast this capital punishment of the worst criminals over the air. They don't broadcast it for all people to see. They limit it to just certain family members and those of the press. Because even the vilest criminals deserve or warrant some amount of dignity and respect but not for Jesus. A public spectacle was made of him 
where he was made to carry the cross, the place of its death, and it was done in complete view of all who would pass by. The third shame was the public death. It was done in Golgotha. It was done on a small hill, a place of a skull. It was, it was named. In view of a full crowd, verse 18, bracketed by two robbers, they were crucified. He was crucified. The inscription placed on him, the fourth shame was the king of the Jews. They were mocking him. Here he is with a, a crown of thorns put on his head, now blood dripping down. He was made to wear a purple robe. And the soldiers, when they were flogging him, surrounded him. And intermittently they would say, Hail, King of the Jews. And they would strike him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they would spit in his face. Hail, King of the Jews. And they would strike him again, slap him, punch him. And they're continuing this spectacle by putting this inscription above him. Here he is, the king of the Jews. In Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, so that all might know what this man claimed to be and what an embarrassing death he is experiencing at the end of his life. He experienced that fourfold shame on the cross and on the cross. There's so much here. Highlight to you his twofold weakness that he evidenced. First is concerning what he said. In the four, four Gospels, uh, they're recorded for us the seven sayings of Jesus while he was on the cross. The first thing that he said was in Luke 23, as he was being crucified, as the nails were being driven to his hands and his feet, he prayed, Father, forgive them, or they don't know what they're doing. Another saying was when the thief asked Jesus, remember me. Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. The third thing, that statement that Jesus said on the cross, we read this morning, whereas the firstborn son, he was responsible for the caring of his, care of his mom, who was a widow. And he saw Apostle John standing nearby, and he fulfilled his responsibility as the firstborn son. And he turned to his dear friend, and he said, Behold, your mother, John, you will not take care of my mom, and from that very hour, that is exactly what John did. The fourth thing he said was, after three hours of complete darkness, at the height where he experienced hell on Calvary, where he was forsaken by God, he cried out in, his, in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. The final thing he said was, into your hands I commit my spirit. He bowed his head and he died. Luke 23, 46. The Gospel of John records our Lord's fifth and sixth saying. And it evidences uh, 
his complete weakness and vulnerability on the cross. The fifth thing he said was, I thirst. I thirst. Here is um, God himself, the maker of heaven and the earth, with parched lips, the Lord of glory in need of a drink. He is the living water, and yet he cries out, I thirst. Here it evidences that um, he was a complete human being in every way, to his death. To his death. God did not bestow on him some supernatural power or strength. He did not cease becoming ceased being human and somehow was endowed with some divinity where he could endure without physical pain. To the very end, he uh, experienced the full spectrum of pain and agony. Spiritually, as a son of God, experiencing uh, hell, being forsaken by God, spiritually, he experienced indescribable pain and agony on the cross. But physically as well. As a man, just like you and I, he experienced pain and even the pain of being thirsty on the cross where he cried out, I thirst. This was, uh, in verse 28, purposed. This was intentional. This was uh, an apologetic. This was an appeal that Jesus was making and John included it so that the Jewish readers would hear and believe because this was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It evidences weakness, but it also fulfilled Old Testament prophecy found in John, uh, Psalm 69. Psalm 69, an important Messianic psalm. Uh, the, the disciples noted this when, when he first came to Jerusalem, and he went to the Herod's temple and the money changers had made a house of prayer into a den of robbers. And Jesus cried out and he uh, physically removed uh, these money changers and stopped their practices and rebuked them for turning uh, God's temple into a place of a finance and, and, and uh, exchanging of money and, and buying and selling of animals. He performed this almost a miracle. It's like going to Staples Center with 18,000 people. There were over 20,000 people in the temple and he silenced them. And they noted in John 2 a Messianic prophecy that is found in Psalm 69. Verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. Here again, him being thirsty fulfills prophecy. Verse 21 of Psalm 69 reads, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And that is exactly what happened. Verse 29 of John 19, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The first time this happened, he, he refused it because it was filled with vinegar. This time, he accepted it. 
self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's interesting what they used to give Christ this wine. They used a hyssop branch. Uh, this branch is important because um, remember in the Old Testament that great um, confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses performed all these miracles demanding that Pharaoh would liberate the Jewish people. And Pharaoh with his heart that was hard, hardened and was being hardened by God refused until the final plague, the final miracle. And that was the angel of the Lord would come down and would kill the firstborn son of every household. Now, in the Asian mindset, especially here in the Middle East, the firstborn son was the most precious child in the family. He would get the bulk of the inheritance. He was uh, the, the hope and the identity of that family to the firstborn son killed was uh, a great judgment. For the people of Israel, God made a covenant. You are to go out, Exodus 12. Select a lamb for yourself and kill the Passover lamb and take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood and put it on the doorpost of your house. And when the angel of death comes to your house and sees that blood that was placed by a hyssop branch, it will pass over. And here we are in John 19. They're taking the hyssop branch and putting it to Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was said of Jesus by Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. He was not dying for his sins, as people supposed. He was dying on our behalf. He was dying as a sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. And then finally on verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. He gives his life. The greatest weakness is to die. And he died on the cross. These three words in the Greek, the telestai, it was the briefest and yet the fullest of his seven utterances. With a loud voice, he declared in the perfect tense, it is finished, it is accomplished. He has fulfilled all obligations of the law. His mission is accomplished. He lived the perfect life. There is no sin in him whatsoever. The perfect sacrifice has now been offered to God. Ransom has now been paid. Atonement has been achieved. Redemption for sinners was complete. He has finished the work for which he came to do. Everything the law foreshadowed that we had fallen short of, that we had violated, has now been accomplished by Jesus. 
And God's justice was satisfied. The ransom, the ransom price for our sins has been paid in full. The wages of sin has been settled forever. Pastor John MacArthur wrote, All things had been done which the law had required. All things established which prophecy predicted. All things brought to pass which the types foreshadowed. All things accomplished which the Father had given him to do. All things performed which were needed for our, temp- or for our redemption. Nothing was left wanting. He finished it on the cross. He fulfilled it on our behalf. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, paying the price for our sins. That is the message of the cross that is uh, full of shame and weakness in the eyes of the world. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the right hand of God through which we are saved. A few final thoughts for you this morning. Again, uh, how did Jesus become the King of the Kings and the Lord of the Lords? How did he do this? It was not through power, glory, and might, but it was through weakness, sacrifice, through selfless service and death. He became our King, not through his discipline, his willpower, nor through his sheer ambition, but by way of love, mercy, and kindness. This was a stumbling block to me as a non-Christian. My idolatry was my strength, my independence, my pride, my ambitions. My dad said this was the most difficult thing for him, serve and worship a king who was triumphant was easy because it fed his idol of being strong, of being in control, being worshipped and, and, and praised. To follow a king who became king through weakness was for him a stumbling block because it cut into his pride. It confronted his uh, self-centeredness. This is Jesus Christ in his glory. And so it is through his weakness he overcame. It's through him divesting of himself and submitting himself to the Father by going to the cross, by experiencing humiliation, shame, and weakness. He became our king. Therefore, we are to acknowledge if we are to understand and believe this truth, our essential weakness, you know, our, we, we deceive ourselves because we have some amount of health, some amount of intelligence, some amount of ability to think that we are strong. 
it blinds us from our constitutional weakness against our sins. That we are powerless before our sins. We have no strength whatsoever to overcome that malady, that monster that stalks us, that rules us from within. It is the most oppressive power. It is relentless in accusing us and devouring us. And it is through that weakness God saves us. It is through our acknowledging I am a sinner. I'm a sinner not because I sin. I sin because at the depth of my being I am powerless. I am weak. I am without strength. I am corrupted in my very being with sin. Secondly, therefore as Christians, how do we now serve Him? How do we now worship and follow this King? We do so by continuing in how we were saved by continuing to trust Him, by continuing to receive from Him, by continuing to love Him, by receiving His gift of salvation, sanctification, and glorification. The law was a cruel slave master. And the law every day told us what to do and what not to do. Our new master declares to us, it is finished. It is accomplished. It is fulfilled. It is done. Therefore, we are the best disciples. We're the most loyal subjects when we receive from Him the power of His resurrection. When we believe in Him and we accept His love we acknowledge what He has done for us and in our weakness receive from Him this gift of salvation. And through that, we acknowledge we have a new master. We are no longer slaves to sin. But we have been set free. And we now have a new master, Jesus Christ. And therefore, because of what He has done for us on the cross, therefore now we obey. Therefore, because He has fulfilled every law, therefore, we fulfill the law. We obey Christ. We strive to please Him. This is why for Christians, uh, the Lord's burden is light. His yoke is easy. His commands are not a burden, but it is a joy for us. It is because of His perfect death on the cross we are now able. We are not able to truly love God and love one another. And finally, the cross is not the end. 2,000 years ago, Mary and another Mary ran to the tomb. Peter and the apostles, after hearing the news, ran to the tomb. And they found the tomb to be empty. 
and Jesus appeared to them in all his glory. And yet with his pierced hands and his feet, pierced, piercing on his side, remaining, he has shown us, shown them and shown us that he has been raised from death. This is the power of Christ. He has been vindicated. He has fulfilled the scriptures completely. And this power has been revealed through his son. And now we see the full glory of the risen Lord. And we see it in Christ's church. Let us remember that the Protestant cross, the Lord is not hanging on that cross. He has been brought down. He was buried and he is raised and he's ascended into heaven and he's now at the right hand of God's, God's kingdom, God's throne. And this is the Lord whom we worship. He is alive and he is risen and he is with us this morning through the Holy Spirit. And one day he shall return. With this uh, triumphant song, this, this victorious truth, let us with hope, worship Him this day. Let us praise His name. Let us live a life worthy of the gospel because He has risen. Let us pray. Our holy sovereign, loving, gracious Father, Lord, it is through the gospel that you save your people. You rescue us, or you redeem us. You create faith in us to see the beauty of Christ and the beauty of the cross, where once that this truth offended us. It stumbled us. It caused us to uh, have our hearts hardened before you. Now through the Holy Spirit, this message of the gospel melts our hearts. We were blind, but now we see. We were deaf, but now we hear. We had a heart of stone, but now, Lord, because of your, you know, that will work in our hearts. We have hearts of flesh. But we pray that you would continue to do, is, do this work uh, here among believers and unbelievers, that we would uh, go away uh, this morning seeing the beauty of Christ and His shame and His weakness, and you would rot in us godly sorrow, a true repentance, Lord, uh, repentance that is truly sorrowful for our sins, but it's so, repentance that is, is biblical, knowing our helplessness to overcome it, that causes us to trust in you as our, as our promised Savior, as our deliverer by your death. We, uh, 
worship the risen Lord. And may your power and glory and might be seen as your people conform more and more to your image, grow in holiness in this. As people who did not know you, but come to now know you, and be at the foot of the cross, worshiping you as you are worthy. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.